Our passage of scripture tonight comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, during Lent, we looked at John 15 in our Lord's teaching about abiding and going. And we focused a lot on the abide part of that command. Um, And I thought that it would be helpful between now and Easter to focus on the going part and to look at the different instructions in the Gospels between Easter and Pentecost where our Lord says to the church, okay, go. This is what I want you to do and to be about. And so this is the, the first one that we'll be looking at. And it's often called the Great Commission. And it's kind of in a sandwich. There's, the, the setting is in verses 16 to 19. Then there's the command in verse 19 to 20. And then the promise to the Spirit after that. And I think the setting is important. There are 11 disciples, not 12. They worship and they doubt. They've gotten here after the the women had seen Jesus at the tomb and commanded them to go, but they've been through a season of of politics and strife within their community. There's been disappointment. People are gone now. They're struggling with their doubts. There's been scandal. There's resistance. At times it feels hopeless. It's a church. Um, And doubters are given the commission as well. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, Let's think about that for a minute. I've had some wonderful conversations this Lent with people who are in this process of deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. And one of, the, one of the questions that we always have to get to, and if you're in that journey, you have to get to it too, is the question of authority. And, and the question is essentially this. Do you believe that there is something greater than you in the universe that you should surrender to? Or, or do you feel that you're pretty much the last resort? You're, you're, you're going to make the final call you're going to retain authority over your life. In other words, are you open to decentering your ego and surrendering to something greater than yourself? That's a question that everybody on a faith journey has to ask. We're not even near talking about the gospel yet. But anybody in a faith journey has to ask this question of, is there a power in the universe bigger than me that I'm willing to surrender my control of my life to? And, and, you know, as, and I've said in these conversations, if, if you're at a point where you just don't think so, or that's not where you are right now, that's fine. Uh, we can love each other. But, but the house you're building is not Christian. Let's just acknowledge that. This is part of 
the, the tradition. It's part of the revelation that uh, there is something, and we call it someone, greater than ourselves who we have to surrender authority to. And, and, and before you nod your head too quickly, if you've heard this text preached many a times, I, my sense is that even those of us that would say, of course, there's a power greater than us, and I do surrender authority to it, don't really. Um, uh, it's, just, it's just a hard idea to get our minds and hearts around. And, and what I'd suggest to you is, is that if you believe that Jesus is the authority, yes, we can disagree on how to read Scripture. Yes, we can work it out in all sorts of different ways. Yes, we can be filled with doubts and things like that. But at the end of the day, there is submission and response and obedience. That's one of the the dividing lines of being a Christian, is the locus of your authority. At one point, you need to cross the Tiber and acknowledge that there is a power greater than yourself. And if you keep going, that power's name is Jesus Christ. Now, if, if you're willing to take that step, these texts can be profoundly disturbing. Um, because what we're saying this next five weeks is the, the one who has authority over my life, the one who earned that authority by rising from the dead, is now actually speaking to me about how I should be thinking about life, about the purpose of my life, uh, about the narrative of my life, about what my priorities should be, and somehow I need to wrestle with that. And what, what I find often happens, particularly in sort of this postmodern critical age that we, that we live in, is, is that we immediately go about deconstructing the concept of authority with all sorts of questions and problems and whatabouts, and I don't like that, and I've seen it misabused here, and, and if that's true, then what's that true? Those are not bad conversations. I'll have them with you. You should have them with each other. We want to be thinking people. We want to be honest people. But you need to be honest with what you're doing too with the text when it makes you uncomfortable and you undercut its authority with a critical question. Is it really your intellect that needs an answer so that you can be a more fully formed follower of Christ or are you simply uncomfortable with the decentering of your ego? That's called metanoia. That's called repentance. I am no longer the center of my own life. Well, if you'd go ahead and put the first slide up, Bob. Um, There's an interesting thing going on in this passage. Um, There's a main verb, uh, make disciples. And there are three participles. Uh, Go is actually a participle baptizing and teaching. And the three participles uh, describe how we go about making disciples. And if you could leave that up, Bob, for a little bit, we're going to look at that in a little more depth. Let's look at that word, make disciples. That's the main verb. Christians are to be about this process of making disciples. And, And really, a disciple is what we looked at all during Lent. A disciple is someone who is in a abiding, conversational, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. 
And the idea of disciple is, is from the ancient world where it was a common way that you learned from a philosopher or religious leader where a handful of people would gather around a, a rabbi or a, or a philosopher. It was intensely intimate. It was intensely personal. Uh, it was long-term. Uh, and, and, and growth came out of that relational context. So a disciple isn't just someone who studies something online A disciple is someone who has an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and submits to Christ's authority in their life, and their life flows out of that connection. We're also to disciple all nations. Uh, The Greek word is ethna. It means people group. Uh, And of course, this is the great Magna Carta of, of global missions. And as Christians, we need to take that seriously. I remember in seminary, taking a course on missions and going into Dr. Dollar's class and seriously asking him about what it was like to be a missionary and Sandy and I talking about whether or not we were called to missions and and we concluded that we were not, that we were called to church planning in the States. And so uh, since then we have given part of our tithe to to global missionaries because we felt like that was a part of the Great Commission. But, But ethnic groups are not just overseas. Um, There's hundreds in America, and there's dozens in our own city. And so one of the things that I think, as a church that seeks the peace of the city, when you read the Great Commission, it does mean foreign missions. It also means, somebody said there are 33 different ethnic groups in Knoxville. That sounds a little low. I think there are more. Um, But this this is a command that is saying that as a neighbor in your city, we need to somehow be in relationship with and and pursuing people of other ethnic groups, even in our city. I think the Lord knows that our tendency is to be with people just like ourselves. And I've shared with you in seminary, there was this class on the homogeneous unit principle, which came out of the church growth movement, which said that the best and fastest way to go to churches was to get people who were like each other together, and that that would be the rapid way for them to grow. And that's true sociologically, uh, but that's not the Great Commission. We need to move into other ethnic groups. Well, how do we do that? Well, the the, the participles describe how we do it. Now, I I, want to talk about the one that's translated go there. You may have heard me say, or you may have heard another preacher say, that is a participle, and what it really means is, while you are going, make disciples. And that, that's certainly a true statement. It it's, uh, makes sense, this idea that you don't have to be on Young Life staff or a pastor at a church. You can make disciples as you're a professor or a waiter or a homemaker. Uh, it's certainly true. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Greek this week. That's not what the Greek means. Um, I wish it was. It preaches better. But um, let, me, let me just quickly bore you with a little Greek. First of all, it's an aorist participle, which means the action took place in the past. So it should, if you were going to translate it as a participle, it would be having gone, make disciples. So you can't really translate it while you are going. Now, the second reason is more technical. Here's a Greek rule. When an aorist participle is followed by an aorist imperative in narrative literature, it almost invariably piggybacks on the force of the imperative. That is, it is translated like an imperative because the author is trying to communicate a command. I know several several of you are in tears. 
Um, it's a very moving concept. No, I know you don't care about the Greek grammar, but but this is the point. Most Greek scholars interpret the go participle as a command. Go. Like, go, move out, past people that are like you, into other ethnic groups. I think that's why it emphasizes uh, the command so much. And you'll remember... Uh, God's people in Jesus' day were very ethnocentric. They did not want to go beyond Jerusalem, beyond Israel. And so Jesus is always going through Samaria. He's making Samaritans heroes of his stories. How long does it take in the book of Acts till anybody leaves Jerusalem to go to another ethnic group? It's Acts 8, almost, uh, almost halfway through the book. And that was because they were persecuted. And when Peter has the crazy idea of sharing the gospel with a Roman... He goes before, he's hauled up before the court and has to explain why he dared do that. See, this was a radical idea to go beyond your own ethnic group. So go means go. Some part of your life, some part of my life needs to be involved in helping other ethnic groups flourish in Jesus Christ. Some other ethnicity. That's got to be part of your life as a disciple maker. Mary Terry's become a good friend in the class that she and Chantel and I are teaching. And uh, she wrote this to me, and she quoted Tom Skinner in a famous sermon at Urbana in 1970. We could put that quote up. She says, Go is a powerful call to me as a person seeking justice in my life. This is because justice work frequently involves being called to a place somewhere other than where I am. Tom Skinner at Urbana 1970 talked about the call to go. You will never be a radical until you go into a world that is enslaved, a world that is filled with hunger and poverty and racism and all those things that are the work of the devil. Proclaim liberation to the captives. Go into the world and and tell me who are bound mentally, spiritually, and physically. The liberator has come. So what does it mean for you to go? What does it mean for you to be a part of a gospel that is supposed to transcend people groups, transcend ethnic groups? Well, I don't think there's a law for this. Uh, I think it can look a million different ways. I think as you abide and go, uh, you'll discern. I think it will probably start with love. I think you'll meet someone in your office or in your neighborhood that's from a different ethnic group than you and something will go on in your heart and you'll start to fall in love with them and that'll be how how it starts. Now, one way, not the only way, one way is to provide support for ministries that are already working in some of these uh, ethnic groups. And and I want to tread lightly here, but I want to say this. You may not agree with what I'm about to say, but... I know a wonderful young man, uh, came to Christ. He decided he wanted to spend two years with a great campus ministry. He's, uh, he's Caucasian, he's white, and uh, he comes from a great family. He has lots of great contacts. He raised his support so quickly it wasn't even funny. He, uh, he went on staff with that organization, had a wonderful experience, and uh, had a full salary you know, within weeks. It was great. 
Well, I have another friend who's had a different experience. Her name is Sarah Kwan. And she came here for several years when she and her husband Osip were in Knoxville. Sarah is extremely gifted, highly educated. She directs Asian ministries within her varsity. She has been raising funds for years and is still not at full support. Uh, And what I have found, and you probably have found this too if you talk to friends like this, minorities have a very difficult time raising funds for their their work. They simply don't have the network uh, most of the time. I have a friend who's on staff here within our varsity who's African-American. He has been working two jobs and raising support for eight years and is still not fully funded. So uh, Sandy and I decided that we'd part of our tithe, we would support Sarah's ministry. So I encourage you to just be thinking about whether as part of your tithe, uh, a minority leader working with an ethnic group uh, might be someone you could support. Well, the second way we we make disciples, Jesus says, is by baptizing. Uh, And that means to immerse. And so we disciple a person by immersing them in the community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, there are two ways, at least in the West, historically churches have done this. In the Roman church, at least up to the Reformation, and I think after that, the approach was believe and then belong. That we need to teach you what it means to believe, and after you go through the classes and understand what it means to believe, then we welcome you into the church. Then we baptize you into the church. In the Celtic church over in Ireland, the approach was flipped on its head, and it was belong and then believe. And the idea was, okay, you're you're a a druid and and a sun worshiper or whatever else. Come on in. And uh, we're going to be Christians and live according to the liturgy and teach the Gospels. And over time, you'll be baptized into this community. And uh, that model reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked by. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. I think that's a a beautiful picture of of Celtic evangelism. Come and see. This may take a while. Just come along. Be a part of our little community here. And and I really think as we move deeper into a post-Christendom context, This kind of hospitality-based gospel presenting may be the way forward. And uh, Matt has just led us into some wonderful experience of this over the the past uh, half a year. I hope you've gotten to be a part of some of these. Um, And one Friday night last winter, the, the square room was filled with an extraordinary artist named Scott Erickson from Portland. And he took an hour and a half to share the gospel, and he used uh, humor and art and film and song and in a 
a cool clothes. And, you know, it was just this remarkable presentation of the gospel that had people in tears and laughing. And I thought, wow. And some of our neighbors were sitting in this room hearing the gospel. And then uh, he helped uh, Deb Scaproth show a film about Flannery O'Connor's faith. And the same thing happened. Many of our neighbors were coming and seeing and hearing more about the faith of a great writer. And then during Holy Work, we, Matt turned the conference room into this incredible chapel, and word got out. I mean, he and I thought, you know, if we have 10 people come to this, this will be good. And by the end of the week, 80 people had come. Uh, the news had picked it up. By, the, by Friday, there were all sorts of people coming through that I'd never seen before. And they'd heard about it. I think it's a way of coming and seeing felt a lot like an urban monastery to me. And by the way, if, if something in you is kind of woken up when I talked about that, if you'd like maybe to envision and plan some more of those kind of uh, artistic expressions and offerings, talk to Matt because we'd love to keep doing that. But it's not enough just to come and see. Uh, there's also teaching. And that's the third participle that, um, that, that we're looking at here. We need to Teach them everything that the Lord has commanded. Now, what does that look like in a local church? How do we do this well? Again, I feel like things are changing greatly. Uh, when I got out of seminary, we started a teaching ministry that was like a mini-seminary. We, uh, we offered systematic theology, church history, Old and New Testament surveys, electives on Matthew, Romans, Ephesians. We even had a Greek class. And, um, and it was good. It was a lot of good things. But I think there were two important aspects of the ancient discipleship model that it missed. Jesus' discipleship is intensely personal. And it's also missional. It's related to the outreach of the church. Uh, so let's talk about this just for a second. Our teaching, our discipling needs to be intensely personal. That's the slow church model. That's the discipling model. I, I asked a friend recently where are you finding the most growth? And she said, in my triad. And triads were something started by a beloved member of our church, Suzanne Hassel, almost 10 years ago, where three or four people get together and uh, they, they, they share about their faith journey and where they're trying to apply God's word to their life and they pray for each other. And you might say, well, that's not teaching. Well, I would say is, well, it is in the biblical sense in that it's trying to help you apply wisdom to your daily life. So discipleship needs to be personal. It also needs to be missional. Uh, and I'm learning a lot from this from Gary Peacock and Taryn Ellsworth. Uh, ever since we preached on the ascension gifts in Ephesians 4.11, apostle, pastor, prophet, evangelist, and teacher, we've been meeting twice a month to pray about what it would look like to actually do that in our church, to have those gifts equip the body of Christ. And Gary and Taryn are helping me see that the best teaching is missional. Uh, it's linked to a person's unique kingdom calling. So instead of just saying, hey, we're teaching a study on Romans Wednesday night, everybody come. That's not a bad thing. But in my experience, when we've offered that, you don't come. Um, just, that's not a criticism, but people used to come, you don't come. What's better? There are, let's say, six teachers in urban uh, schools who are struggling to live faithfully for Christ and carry out the gospel in an urban context, let's develop some training 
about how to be a disciple as a teacher in an urban context in a suffering school. Do you see how different that is? It's much more missional. It's linked to the, the unique mission of the individuals involved. Um, now, even as our teaching becomes more personal and missional, we also have to remember that it needs to include all that I have commanded. And this, I think, is something that's very difficult to do. And churches tend to emphasize parts of what the Lord commanded, and other churches tend to emphasize other parts. Uh, I thought of this this week. I I read the statement uh, on social justice in the gospel that came out in November. And this document says that any kind of teaching on justice is a distraction from the gospel, And so disciple-making should focus exclusively on the spiritual. And then I read an article that was critiquing the statement of social justice in the gospel, and it said about exactly the other thing. It stressed biblical justice so much that there seemed to be little interest in evangelism. And so disciple-making for this group was primarily social. But an increasing number of Christians, I think, are beginning to understand that Jesus teaches a both-and gospel, one that focuses on spiritual and social. Andy Crouch puts it like this in his book, Playing God, if we could have that quote. uh, What both sides have gradually and sometimes grudgingly realized is that care for the poor and oppressed and proclamation of the good news of salvation through Jesus simply are both essential biblical themes. Evangelism is a means to an end Restoring the image bearer's capacity for relationship and worship. And doing justice is likewise the means to an end, shalom. The work of justice is to restore the conditions that make image bearing possible. The result of both real evangelism and real doing of justice is the restoration of the image of the only true God in the world. So that, I think, is our challenge as we try to be a disciple-making church, is that we teach all that God commanded, and not just the part that we're most comfortable with. Well, it's, we're running out of time. We won't talk about this this week, but he ends with this lovely command or promise that his presence will be with us. And the Lord said, oh, that's Mark. That's good, too. I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit with you. And so what I'd ask you to pray about this week is you think about what do I do with this? What does it look like for me to make disciples, especially in other ethnic groups? What does it look like for me to invite people into the Trinitarian broken community of God? What does it look like for me to teach everything that God has commanded, even if I'm not a pastor or a missionary or a young life leader? What does it look like for me in my life right now? I would say, pray. He's with us and he will show. Let's pray.